All right, good morning again. Welcome to the Springs. This is your first time with us. We're so thankful that you're here worshiping with us. Uh, We want to make this church your home. So uh, in the seat back behind you, there's a connection card. And if you fill it out and turn it in, we would love to stay connected with you and and grow in in honoring God and and making disciples. So uh, welcome out. You're brave the cold weather. Uh, The church-wide family campout was a great time. Awesome. Uh, last year, we went for the first time, me and my wife, and, and so we slept on the hard ground. And, and this year, we told ourselves, we're going to get an air mattress. And so we got an air mattress, and, except it was a lot colder this time. So if it wasn't the hard ground that kept us up, it was the cold weather. But the Lord blessed it, and we had a great time. So that's my plug. Come next year, and it's going to be a great time. Uh, so where we find ourselves today is in we are in week four of our sermon series called Birthmarks. So what we've been doing as a church is we've been journeying through the book of Romans, chapter by chapter, in some places verse by verse, and unpacking Paul's longest exposition, longest explanation of the gospel. And so what we hope to accomplish in this series is put on display and highlight what are the character traits, what are the birthmarks of a true Christian, And there's something interesting that happens in in chapter 12. Uh, All of this book is kind of building up to this moment. So like any good story or or good movie, there seems to be some sort of tension, some sort of problem. And then there begins uh, to be some sort of build up to overcome the problem. And then there's a turning of the corner. Uh, With the advent of Disney Plus, I'm reminded of one of the greatest sports movies of all time. Remember the Titans. Come on. Uh, I don't know how my wife made it all the way up to this day without ever watching this movie, but I got to uh, disciple her and share with her the greatness of of Denzel Washington. And so to make the connection here, if you know the story, Coach Boone takes over this uh, racially divided football team. And what he begins to do is, is, is he notices this problem of, of racism and hate is dividing these young men. And so he begins to methodically and systematically break down these barriers by uniting these players using their common love, football. And then there's this glorious moment where where this buildup and and this tension is finally resolved and they cross over into being this unified team. They're working in harmony, respecting and honoring one, one another. And after this problem is, is dealt with, after it seems that this barrier is removed, their, their character changes, their behavior changes. They begin to go on to be the undefeated high school Virginia football team and one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, so how, how does this relate to Romans? Not, not to uh, overly simplify or stretch this, but we see something similar happen in this letter. In chapter 1, Paul begins to address this issue, this problem called sin. Now, it's tainted humanity and has distorted the image of God. Not beyond recognition, but beyond repair. And so what Paul begins to do is methodically break down how Jesus restores us back to the image of God, restores us back into relationship with the Father, and how it was God's plan for Jesus to rescue us and redeem us from our sin. And then we turn the corner. We arrive at chapter 12. And this chapter answers this question. If Jesus truly is who he said he is, 
if he lived for us and he died for us and he removed all these barriers that keep us from living for him, how shall we live? How shall we behave? And so we get to verse one and, and it says that in light of God's mercy, in light of God's goodness, this is how we should act. He says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Now, sacrifice was a practice in the Old Testament, and it was a way to express worship to God, among other things. Now, how do we give ourselves to God in worship as a living sacrifice? And he begins to unpack this idea. And so last week, we read verse 9, and it said, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul begins to outline how a Christian, a true follower of Christ, should behave. And so today we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16, and we're going to continue to unpack this idea of of the birthmarks of a true Christian. So will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 16. It says this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So with the remaining time that that we have together, I want to bring this one big idea to life, and it's this. True love engages. True love engages engages. And I want to break down this idea with three observations from each verse. Number one, true love does not detach from persecution. True love does not detach from the emotions of others. And true love does not detach from community. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we ask that as we look into your word, Father, that you would transform us from the inside out. Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word, that you would remove uh, any distractions that we may have brought in, and that you would prepare our hearts to be good soil. In Jesus' name, amen. So whether you believe it or not, the, the lives that we live tell a story about what we believe. Our beliefs are manifested in our behaviors. And what we believe about God is revealed in the way that we behave and conduct ourselves. For example, if you believe that maybe God doesn't have his best interests in mind towards you, that he cannot move on your behalf, you might come up with this conclusion, why pray? And so you may not practice this behavior of praying because you don't believe that God can answer prayers. Another example, if you, if you believe money is a resource and a gift from God, you will behave and act more generously. What you believe about money will be revealed in how you handle it. 
And so you can say all day long with your lips, uh, for example, that, that you love people, that you want to help people, that you want to serve the community. But what you say with your lips isn't necessarily true until it's visually confirmed in your behaviors. Uh, one of my favorite persons in the world, uh, Eleanor Hedgebeth Johnson, my grandmother-in-law, uh, made it very clear to me from the beginning that my words will not impress her. Uh, she wanted to see my behaviors. And I thought to myself, I'm an external processor. All I have is my words. Like, my words are awesome, Grandma. And she said, I'm not impressed with your words. I want to see your behaviors. I want to see how you handle your money. I want to see how you treat my daughter. Because what our behaviors do is they tell a story about what we believe. And so what do your behaviors say about your beliefs? The way you act, what does it say about your belief in God? You see, this text explains to us what a follower of Jesus should look like. If we truly believe in Jesus and we've committed our lives to him, what should our behaviors look like? Now, maybe a few red flags that, that come up is you're probably thinking, I, I thought we were saved by grace. What does what is works and, and behavior have to do with this? Do I have to act the right way? Do I have to become a certain person so that God will accept you? And the answer is no, that, that upon placing your faith in Jesus, you're immediately accepted by God. However, as we abide in him, as we grow in relationship with him, he begins to change our behaviors from the inside out. The idea is simple, is that the more time we spend with Jesus, the more we begin to act and look like him. And when we find our life in Christ, our life becomes his life. When we focus on Jesus, he transforms us. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus or, or you're exploring faith, I want to show you from this text how following the ways of Jesus is a better way to live. And if you have been following Jesus, I want to open up this text and see how we can live it in our own lives. And so in this portion of scripture, we see Paul addressing three subjects. If you're taking notes, you can write down these three words, persecution, suffering, and humility. Persecution, suffering, and humility. Each of these verses represents a transformed attitude. And all of this is based off the first couple of verses of this chapter. What should our new life look like when we are in relationship with Jesus? Well, we bless those who persecute us. This new life, we sympathize with others' joys and sorrows. In this new life, we demonstrate genuine humility. Now, these three subjects that Paul is addressing, these three attitudes, if you're following along, may seem a little random. Persecution, suffering, humility, what's the connection there? They may seem a little disconnected, but the author of this scripture is not known for randomness or just being all over the place. He's not known for disorganization. Paul is not like me, who is taking by randomness and being awkwardly all over the place. No, Paul is precise. He is deep and he is organized. So if these three subjects are not randomly grouped together, what connects them? If they are not disorganized and disjointed, what ties them together? I want to suggest to you that what connects these three verses together is that they are all rooted in selflessness. 
They are all rooted in selflessness. So let's talk about this word selflessness. Everyday definition means to uh, concern with the needs and wishes of others than with one's own. To be devoted to the welfare or interest of others and not one's own. To be unselfish. And so the word for selflessness in the language of the New Testament is self-renunciation. Self-renunciation. What does this mean? The renunciation of your own interests in favor of the interests of others. In other words, this means to, to sacrifice, to give up and surrender your own interests and desires in favor of the interests of others. For Jesus, this word renunciation was the denial of the self. Jesus himself says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, it's a common mistake to misinterpret this and take denying the self to mean abstaining from all earthly pleasures. This is not what the Bible teaches. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says that God provides us things for our enjoyment. Yet Paul also says in Titus 2, 11 through 12, for the grace of God has appeared for salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to say no to the worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So so self-denial or self-renunciation is saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions and living our lives within the framework that God has established for us. And so we are to do what God has commanded us to do and abstain from what God has commanded us not to do. And so as it relates to this text in Romans for today, what has God commanded us to do? Well, he says, bless those that persecute you. Pray that God would bless them. Don't curse them. That's what Paul says. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be prideful, but associate with the lowly. I love the New Living Translation, the way it puts it. It says, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. And all the wives said to their husbands, yes and amen. So how does selflessness and self-denial connect these three verses together? Well, we can only bless those who persecute us and afflict us if we are more concerned about their eternal welfare than we are concerned about our suffering. We can only rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who weep when our focus is off of ourselves and we renounce selfishness and choose to celebrate others over ourselves. We can only live in harmony with one another and not be prideful or consumed with how much better we think we are than others if our eyes are on the Lord and others and not on ourselves. Selflessness and self-denial, they connect and tie these three verses together. 
But what does this have to do with our big idea? True love engages. If selflessness is this thread that ties these three verses together, if you can imagine a thread tying uh, three balloons together, I want to suggest that, that love is the key word that makes living it out even possible. That love is this air in the balloons that, that causes it to flow and not be stagnant or fall to the ground. Love is the driving force behind selflessness. But I don't want to talk about any ordinary love or some sort of earthly shallow love. I want to talk about agape love. Agape is a Greek word for the highest form of love. It's not like brotherly love, uh, which Peter discussed last week, or love between a a husband and a wife. It is the most selfless and self-sacrificing love there is. Agape love seeks the well-being of others without expecting anything in return. I mean, let that sink in. How different is that from selfish love? Selfish love says that, that I will love this person or love this thing because of what they can give me or what they can do for me and how they can make me feel. Agape love seeks the well-being of others first without expecting anything in return. I love this definition from a New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight. He says, love, agape love is a rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for that person's good and to love them unto God's formative purpose. Agape love is a rugged commitment to be with someone as someone who is for that person's good and to love them unto God's formative purpose. In other words, your job is to partner with God and love that person into becoming the man or woman God has called them to be all along. And this is the love that that God has and expresses towards his children. This is the type of love that we see displayed on the cross. This is the type of love in John 3, 16. God so loved the world, agape love, that he gave himself up. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And this type of love is not of human origin. It is not accomplished through human effort, but lived out by first being loved by God and experiencing his love daily. And so this understanding of love is very, very important if we are to live out the commands outlined in Romans 12. So let's look at verse 14 together. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Point one, true love does not detach from persecution. True love engages. True love does not detach from persecution. Rather, true love blesses those who persecute you. And so what does this look like? What does it mean to bless those who persecute you? Let's take a look at the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 27 through 36. You don't have to go there, but, but listen closely. It says this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, 
offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. Verse 32 says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return. And get this, your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Wow. This, this life that, that Jesus is, is, is modeling seems upside down. Yet this idea of loving your enemies was one of Jesus' most radical ideas. Now, recall our, our definition of agape love. To love selflessly, to love self-sacrificially, and to love a person into becoming all that God has called them to be. So when Jesus is saying, love your enemy, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, hey, uh, you persecuted me. You said something really mean to me. You've afflicted me physically or emotionally, so um, that's okay. You did me wrong. I'm going to tolerate your behavior and, and say no big deal, and we'll just be nice to each other. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that the most loving thing you can do is bless them and love them into all that God has called them to be. Not to be passive, but to be active in blessing them. And so what does this look like? Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray that they would be blessed. Don't curse them. Pray that good things would be released over their life. If that person is plagued by evil and consumed with hate, pray that God would move over them. And notice Paul's words. He says, don't curse. Now this word curse means to invoke evil upon someone. Invoking evil is the enemy's plan for destroying God's people. When we curse, when we bad mouth when we inflict harsh words on others, we are partnering with the destructive powers of hell against God's creation. And this is one of the reasons why the entirety of James chapter 3 is about the tongue. He says in James 3, 6, the tongue can set on fire the entire course of life. With your words, you have the capacity to destroy creation and everything in it. And it says that this fire from the tongue is set on fire by hell. When we partner with cursing and harassing and inflicting evil with our words on other people, we are partnering with the destructive forces of hell against God's creation. And Jesus' way isn't violence towards the enemy. And it isn't passivity. It's pray for them. 
Not bad-mouthing about a person to your spouse, friends, or on social media. Not inflicting pain. No, pray for them. Pray and love them into all that God has called them to be. Pray that they would be released from whatever is over them and suppressing them and that they would experience God's love and mercy and grace. Not invoke evil upon them. Praying and invoking blessing is one of the tools that we use as the children of God to put on display God's power and to advance his kingdom. This, this sermon series, like we sh- uh, shared in, in week one, is uh, I, I first heard these scriptures when I was 18 years old for the very first time. Persecute those who bless you. I didn't know what it meant, and I didn't have a theology for it, but it was always on my mind. And so uh, one day when, I, when I'm driving back home from Red Oak, Texas, uh, I stop in, in, in Waco about one in the morning uh, to grab myself some sort of beverage that would keep me awake on the road. And as I parked my car, I, I noticed a group of people on, at the pump next to me that, that looked like me. I said, oh, surely I'll, I'll be fine if I go into this gas station. Nothing can happen to me. Uh, and so as I, as I go into the gas station, the cashier looks at me in the most dramatic way possible. I, I can't make this up. I promise you this happened. He said, be careful out there. I was like, what is that supposed to mean? Like, this is your gas station. Don't, don't tell me that. And so on my way back to my car, this guy in a Halloween mask comes and just knocks me out, punches me, and I fall to the ground. And I think to myself, oh, I, I really don't have time for this. And so I get in my, I get in my car and in my 2002 Impala, and I just drive off, okay? And, and this whole group of people is, is watching me drive off, and something supernatural happens in me that I had no explanation for except the grace of God, that the presence of God comes into my car. And the first thing that I, that I recall is this scripture. I say, God, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that your hand would come over them and that they would become all that you've called them to be. The scripture was just on my mind, bless those who persecute you. And I, I drove off with just so much excitement. I was like, wow, I've been persecuted for the gospel. I didn't even do anything. This is awesome. Check. Throw me in jail now. Let's go. Come on. Uh, and no context for it, but when the Lord begins to transform you, as you grow in relationship with him, the evidence that you're growing in relationship with him is that your attitudes and your behaviors begin to change. And when he begins to move in your life, certain things that maybe would have thrown you off in the past don't take you out, or certain things that would have triggered you or made you mad have a different effect on you. It's because God is working in you and making you and forming you to be more like him. And so I, I can't take credit for this. I was just got in my car and said, Lord, this bless him. And, and, I, and I had a swollen lip, which I thought was super cool. Um, and then I, I went back to it. And so why is blessing and cursing a, a better way to live? Verse 35, Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You see, when you bless and pray for those who persecute you, you reflect the character of Christ to them. You reflect the love and grace of God. And our reward for blessing those who afflict us is the privilege 
of growing closer to God and experiencing him more. When we love our enemy, we become more like our father. And in doing so, we experience God in a more intimate way as we journey to become more like him. Let's look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. True love does not detach from the emotions of others. Point number two. True love does not detach from the emotions of others. True love engages. True love enters deeply into the experiences and emotions of others. Sounds, sounds pretty simple, right? It's a, a bit more simple than, than loving our enemies, right? Uh, but what I've come to realize in my own life is that it's the simple things we overlook because they're simple. And yet it's the simple things that we need constant reminder of over and over again. If this is one of the marks of a true Christian and it's written down as a command, chances are this doesn't come natural to you. All of it sounds simple, but the reason why this is difficult is because it requires self-denial, self-renunciation. To enter deeply into the experiences of others, to enter deeply into their joys, into their sorrows, means that we have to take our eyes off of ourselves. Now, I'll be the first to admit, this is, this is hard for me. Empathy is, is not up there on one of my strengths. My temptation is to mix these verses up. I rejoice over those who weep sometimes. And I weep when others are rejoicing. And I, I may have lost some of you, and you're thinking, what is, what is wrong with this guy? If you're honest with yourself, this is your temptation too. Maybe naturally we, we weep with those who are weeping, but envy and pride keep us from rejoicing with those who rejoice. We say things like, why is that, prom- why is that person getting promoted or, or picked over me? Instead of celebrating the success of others, we curse them with our attitudes and our words. Why is that person getting engaged or married before me? Instead of celebrating what the Lord is doing in another person's life, we express envy and pride and say, God, why? why? And instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, we tear them down with our thoughts and words. Like, why is that person experiencing so much freedom and so much breakthrough, but I've been following Jesus longer? To celebrate others and to rejoice without expecting anything in return. To rejoice with those who rejoice means getting our eyes off of ourselves and celebrating the well-being of others without expecting anything in return. Love delights in other people's good. When our hearts are anchored in God's love, it becomes a delight to love others and rejoice with them, not a duty. And so this is why Paul starts off chapter 12 by saying, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
Now, the mercies of God is a, is a Hebrew phrase, and in this context, it's referring to the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Uh, in summary, it's the, the wonderful things that God has done for us through Jesus, how Jesus has rescued us, redeemed us, restored us, given us worth and life and identity, has brought us into his family, set us free from shame, guilt, condemnation, addiction, and has freely given eternal life when all we deserved was death. Rejoicing begins with God's mercy, taking into consideration who we were apart from God, how wonderful he's been to us, how good he's been to us, and reflecting deeply on how Jesus rescued us from ourselves. I need to constantly remind myself it's a delight to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Because when there was nothing to rejoice over in my life, God said, I want you in my family and rescued me from myself. When there was nothing worth rejoicing over you, God rescued you from yourself and freely gives you everything you need, everything we'll ever need, satisfaction, peace, fulfillment in Christ Jesus. It's a delight to bless those who persecute you, because when I persecuted God, he came and poured out his blessings over my life in exchange for my wickedness. When you are compelled by love, when you experience God's love, it is a delight to live for God, not a duty. And we come to verse 16, and it says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Last point, true love does not detach from community. True love engages. True love does not detach from community. So let's take a look at the first part of this verse. Live in harmony with one another. Paul is calling us to live in unity. You see, unity, when we place our faith in Jesus, we become united to him. And unity with Jesus unites us to one another. You see, though we come to Jesus as individuals upon salvation, upon placing our faith and lives into his hands, we experience salvation individually, but immediately we're united to all the members of God's family, past, present, and future. And so here's what I've I've learned about family is that it's messy. It's messy, it's dysfunctional, it's hard. Living life in the family of God is is not perfect, but but it's worth it. What I've learned is that family is awesome when when things are, are going awesome and it can get real messy really fast and can feel hard and difficult. However, when difficulties arise, when messy issues, drama, fill in the blank, you name it, come up, and it will come up, it does not mean that this is an opportunity for you to abort ship, to say something like, man, this family stinks, or criticize the flaws in others, and and talk about what we don't like in this person. Rather, it's an opportunity to practice maintaining unity 
to create peace and to love others through their mess. This is the way God the Father is loving us through our own mess. And God has not detached or quit on us because we are difficult. Paul says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. In Rome, there was a a class system. And it meant that certain groups of people did not interact with each other. It It was off limits. And Paul is reminding this early community of faith. He's saying something so controversial and so scandalous. He's saying, don't just associate with the rich or with people that look like you. Associate with everyone. People who don't look like you, people who don't act like you, people who are maybe systematically disconnected from you. He says, associate with everyone. Why? Because there's no such thing as a spiritual class system. There's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. To live in harmony with each other, we have to be willing to associate with everyone. Keyword, everyone. Not just people who look like you and not just people you enjoy because they make you feel good and they go out of the way to talk to you. Not just people who are nice to you and and make time for you. Not just people who make us feel good and make us feel understood. No, live in harmony with everyone. To the best of your ability, Paul says, live peaceably with everyone. And so living in harmony is difficult because it requires humility. And like blessing our enemies and empathizing with others, humility requires selflessness and self-denial. See, one of the things that distorts and prevents harmony is when we assume we know everything about the other person. And this is why Paul says, do not think highly of yourself. You do not know everything. You do not have all the information. So be very careful to accept your own opinion as the final word. Humility brings harmony. It's a delight to live in harmony, not a duty. When you experience God's love, it becomes easier to love others and seek their well-being without expecting anything in return because everything you need is found in Jesus. And freely he has poured out his love on us. Freely we can give. So I want to close with this question as we come to the table. How do you love? Do you love selflessly? Self-sacrificially? Do you seek the well-being of others over yourself? Or do you expect something in return? Do you bless those that persecute you? Do you pray that God would favor them and that they would come to a knowledge of Jesus and experience the great love and grace that you've experienced? Or do you curse, inflict harsh words and gossip, and detach from your enemies? Do you selflessly empathize with others? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Do you weep with those who weep? Or are you consumed 
with envy. And instead of rejoicing, you criticize. Do you promote harmony through your humility? Do you seek to maintain unity and choose to associate with everyone? Or do you associate with those who look like you and bring something to offer you? Or in pride, do you detach from community because your expectations aren't being satisfied? So how do you grow in this love? It doesn't come from human effort. It doesn't come from doing better and trying to become a better person. It comes from the source of love, God himself. Not by doing better, but by coming to Jesus and asking him to transform us and help us become more like him and love like him. And so as we transition into communion, let's prepare our hearts from this place.